the legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Unlocking Cannabis. I'll be your host today, Jordan Euclid with Key Investment Partners. Really excited for the fantastic panel we've got together of industry experts, um, industry experts from both the venture capital and the debt, um, debt capital side of the cannabis financing world. So today I'm uh, very excited to be joined by Ross Demaray of Intrinsic Capital Partners, Serge Sherman of Tuatara Capital, Heather Lafreniere of Lago Innovation Fund, and John Goldrath of Focus Growth Asset Management. Thanks everybody so much for taking the time to join me today here. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So maybe to kick things off, would love if everybody could just go around the horn and give a little bit about your personal background, your career history, and then ultimately how you decided to get involved in the cannabis industry. Heather, would you like to kick it off? Sure, I'll start. So again, Heather Lafreniere, I'm the co-founder of Lago Innovation Fund. Um, and you know, my background is I've been in the credit markets for over 25 years, um, done every kind of lending to every kind of industry you can think of, cash flow, asset-based, distressed, automotive, software, you know, think of, done pretty much any part of it. Um, also uh, did about 10 years of investment banking, debt advisory work. Um, and then, you know, launched Lago Innovation Fund about two years ago to really focus on high growth emerging um, companies. And what we have seen, as everyone on this um, uh, panel also has experienced is tremendous growth. It, you know, as legalization in cannabis has has evolved, tremendous growth, really cool opportunities, and how why we decided to go into this space from a credit perspective. I mean, the credit is our background. There's limited supply of capital um, from that perspective, given the the lack of you know banking, and then. You know, we view this whole opportunity, it, it's really kind of a generational opportunity. I mean, think of if you could have invested in Anheuser-Busch or Jack Daniels post-prohibition, right? I mean, that is kind of where we're at right now with this industry. And we just think there's tremendous opportunity uh, to help uh, companies grow and, and build some, some of the iconic names, what in 20 years will be iconic names, right? right. Absolutely. Thanks, Heather. Serge, would love to flip it over to you now. Uh, great, thanks, Jordan, and uh, and really happy to be here with you and, and uh, the other panelists. Um, so I'm a managing director at uh, Tuatara Capital. It's a firm uh, based in New York. Um, firm was founded in uh, 2015 uh, by uh, three uh, uh, partners who came out of primarily institutional, you know, backgrounds. They were friends, and uh, uh, they they had this great idea to to find an institutional uh, institutional quality firm. And uh, I came on board about two and a half years ago. Uh, prior to Atara, spent 15 years in investment banking in New York. Um, various uh, firms, uh, J.P. Morgan, RBC, Saida General, uh, primarily focused on uh, the private equity sector. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, private equity names, you know, marquee names were my clients. Uh, prior to J.P. Morgan, I also spent a number of years at G Capital, you know, on the M&A side. Um, and 
you know, I'd say prior to coming over to GE, really started my career uh, in the Navy. I, uh, I was a nuclear submarine officer right out of college, um, driving nuclear submarines and, uh, you know, left the military and then transitioned to the civilian world. Fantastic. Thanks, Serge. And thank you for your service to the country. Thank you. Uh, John, why don't we uh, flip it over to you now? Sure. Uh, Jonathan Goldra. I'm uh, one of the founding partners at Focus Growth Asset Management. Um, similar to Heather, I cut my teeth in credit investing um, in a wide range of companies, both um, traded securities, well, loan origination. Most of that was done at Fortress Investment Group. Uh, worked for them in New York, San Francisco, and London through the Euro crisis. Um, my first foray into the cannabis industry was actually as an operator. Uh, one of our partners at Focus Growth and I founded, um, applied for and won one of the first 12 grower processor licenses in Pennsylvania. We went on to be the second guys up and running um, following Cresco by about three weeks and really never looked back. We, we went on to win licenses in Ohio as a, as a processor, um, in Pennsylvania again on the retail side of things in their second round and in Utah uh, most recently. We, we sold most of those businesses as the industry was starting to go public in 2019 through reverse takeover transactions. And we were sitting there having returned a lot of money to our investors and ourselves and realized we built out a sourcing network, uh, an underrating capability as an operator within the space um, and had a, had a pool of capital to put to work and realized there was really a dearth of debt capital. We did three deals just on a deal by deal basis as agent, syndicator and investor. And then a little bit over a year and a half ago came together with um, a gentleman who ran a large long short equity fund named John Lagaretzos and um, the managing partners of a 20-person dedicated cannabis law firm called Feuerstein Kulik to form what became Focus Growth. We have, uh, Fund One was about $165 million. 90% of that was senior secured loans. Uh, we have a flexible mandate to provide solutions that work for companies to those borrowers, but most of it will be credit. Um, and yeah, we're, we're nearly fully deployed and in the process of raising fund two with a, a very similar thesis on the attractive risk adjusted return within credit in the space. Fantastic, thanks John. And I imagine that that dearth of capital story is one that we'll hear pretty consistently throughout the panel. So uh, yep. with that, we'll flip it over to Ross to, to round it up. Thanks Jordan, I appreciate you uh, including me on, on this uh, call or webinar, I should say. I've been calling it a podcast, but I, I was corrected a few times. Um, Ross Demray, Principal on Intrinsic Capital. Um, we are an operator-centric growth equity fund, uh, primarily focused on investing in ancillary technology businesses and software businesses that support the supply chain, as well as more traditional healthcare and life science business models that operate in, in the cannabis and hemp uh, framework. Uh, prior to Intrinsic, I started my career at Goldman Sachs, um, started at, in their uh, securities division within their algorithmic trading group, uh, transitioned over to the investment banking division where I focused primarily on financial service re services related businesses, fintech businesses, really across the capital markets landscape, equity, debt, capital markets, and traditional M&A. Uh, I spent a few years at a middle market private equity firm in Boston, 
uh, and then transitioned over to get my MBA at MIT Sloan. And that's really where I started to explore the cannabis space. Um, I like to think of it as, you know, the combination of strategic opportunistic and coincidental where I was trying to explore a variety of different entrepreneurial entrepreneurial endeavors uh, and really started to dive into the cannabis space and realized that there was you know a tremendous amount of opportunity there on the investing side there are this is a real industry that's being built uh, with fundamentally sound businesses and infrastructure being built behind it uh, it would be a really unique career opportunity to get involved in the space I was working at an, another fund on the West Coast, Casa Verde Capital, one of the earlier entrants in the space on the investing side, and then ultimately was introduced to the team at Intrinsic, and I've been with them for a better part of two and a half years now. Great. Thanks so much, Ross. And so as we kind of continue on to the panel, I think that you know one of the uh, one of the helpful things that uh, for potential portfolio companies that would be listening to this podcast would be to learn a little bit more about you know, what are the types of companies that you're looking to invest into today, right? Are there specific subsectors that you're focused on? Do the company need to be at a certain stage? Are there certain, you know, underlying metrics like revenue growth or, or profitability that you look for before making an investment? So with that, maybe I'll pass it over to Serge to get your thoughts on that front. Great. Thanks, Jordan. Um, so we, we do, um, uh, invest, I would say thematically around this industry. We spend a lot of time uh, studying different subsectors in the space uh, and finding opportunities where we want to, you know, deploy capital. Um, I would say when we take a look at our different themes, um, uh, a one that certainly uh, comes to mind is we are selective in terms of limited distribution states. So we do hold, we do invest in both plant touching and non-plant touching assets. Um, but when it comes to uh, plant touching on assets specifically, where you have to operate within, you know, the, the, obviously the state jurisdictions, we're very particular around what states we want to uh, invest in. Um, we have um, spent quite a bit of time focused on the technology and science uh, uh, subsectors. Uh, we're big believers in. Um, you know, biosynthetic cannabinoid production or alternative cannabinoid productions. We actually have several investments in the space, you know, both in fund one and fund two. Uh, we have uh, raised, you know, really two funds. Uh, fund one was 2016 vintage fund, raised, you know, a little under $100 million in that fund that's been fully deployed across nine different investments. Uh, fund two, uh, we ended up uh, closing fund two in. Uh, middle of 2020, uh, that ended up just shy of 270 million. Uh, and we've been continuing to deploy out of fund two. And currently we have nine investments in fund two, including uh, an investment in a, in a SPAC, which the, uh, the fund sponsored. Besides tech and science, brands this certainly is a very interesting area. I think we both, we're all you know, believers in brands as brands will eventually materialize. And we, as we think about the profit pools in the industry, Today, you know, you could make money across the value chain, um, you know, in kind of the, the upstream value chain of, you know, basically cultivation all the way through processing and that middle stream all the way to downstream and retail and brands. But eventually we do suspect that the profit pools will start shifting more towards the downstream, towards the brands as those brands starts, you know, to uh, uh, shift from being, you know, local state specific brands to more 
you know, regional to eventually national, potentially international brands. And we've deployed money in the space and in, in, in several brand um, uh, companies. And then the last sector is, you know, we call it the ancillary sector, but then, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a large bucket. Um, typically it's non-plant touching assets, um, but uh, there are assets that are really there to support this industry. Uh, everything from technology to um, companies that are supplying, you know, uh, um, various, you know, either ingredients or various, uh, call it, you know, picks and shovels to the sector. So lens is pretty broad. We try to stick to our themes, uh, generally focused on North America, um, although we do uh, look internationally as well into some selective markets. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we do both minority investing. We're also very comfortable doing control investing, depending on what the company needs and very flexible when it comes to, you know, investing across the capital structure. We do have, sure. we invest in common equity, we invest in preferred equity, we invest in debt instruments. Uh, we typically really work with the companies to structure the best uh, investment vehicle and capital structure that will work for the company. Great, thanks Serge. Ross, how about you? Yeah, appreciate that. Thanks, Serge. Um, so yeah, we, we tend to, and um, you know, a little bit different than uh, Serge and the folks over at Tuatara, but we, we do work with them on a variety of deals. Obviously, Jordan, uh, yourself and your team included. Uh, well, we you know, certainly believe in the underlying fundamentals of the plant-touching companies and the, you know, their, their integral nature in the, in the industry. We focus primarily on non-plant-touching uh, segments of the market. So technology, software, data, life science, healthcare, distribution, logistics, you know, all business models that either we've invested behind throughout our entire careers or built and scaled uh, specifically. So models we know well, uh, you know, we like to look for strong, passionate uh, management teams where we are aligned on the vision and path to success prior to making an investment. Um, you know, of the $100 million that we've raised for Fund One, we've got four portfolio companies to date. So a pretty concentrated portfolio. And that's really based on our, our kind of view and vision and strategy around investing where, you know, we of course believe in the, the, the fundamental attributes of the market and, and growth attributes, but we don't believe in investing and sitting passively uh, and just letting those growth dynamics take hold. We like to work with management teams during kind of the sourcing and diligence phase and figuring out how can we add value, uh, whether it's at the board level, the executive level, the level, the kind of operator or dual, doer level, how do we tap into our respective networks, uh, which are unique, which are deep, uh, which have really kind of focused and segment expertise, and how do we tap into those resources to really add value? Uh, and I think our portfolio is quite representative of that, where we have a lab testing business, a software business, a, a breathalyzer business that test impairment on site, and then a consumer wellness business. All, all lanes that we, we know well uh, and have invested behind and scaled through our respective careers. Great, thanks Ross. And you know, just hearing both you and Serge talk about your, your strategy, I'd say Keys is a little bit of a blend between the two where, you know, we are predominantly ancillary focused. I'd say 75% ancillary, 25% plant touching. And on the ancillary side, you know, looking at biotech, healthcare services, business services, and software. You know, on the plant touching side, and the distinction is always a little bit 
tricky because there are companies that have creative structures that from a legal perspective aren't plant touching, but from a practical perspective are of course plant touching and you know others that that kind of uh, work that same structure from the flip side. But nonetheless, on the plant touching side, we do see some really interesting opportunities from a vertical integration perspective on both the single state and multi-state operator uh, landscape, especially with states that are still emerging or you know have either not yet legalized rec or have just recently done so and there's a lot of growth potential still ahead of them um and so yeah with that i'll, uh, I'll flip it over to heather to, to learn about where you guys are looking to invest yeah sure so i think we're a little more along the lines of tuatara where it's both plant touching and, and the ancillary um we've got five investments to date one mso two single state operators then we have an edibles a brand um and two smaller more kind of i guess they're brands also i'm just trying to think how to describe them but from a debt perspective you know we companies you know kind of north of that you know call it 20 million ish you know, uh, um, revenue perspective, um, unless it's, I should caveat that, unless it's a software business, we'll go much earlier for software companies. <laughs> um, but, um, and 40% of our fund is allocated to equity co-invest. We're not set up to be a lead investor on an equity basis, but we can participate. So we can either, the, the point why we did that is, you know, walking in to talk to a company, what do you need? we could put together, you know, potentially a full service solution for them. Um, and you know, so we can do senior debt and then we can also do the equity co-invest, but, you know, more, more along the lines of Tuatara from what we're interested in, which is fairly broad. Let's put it that Great. Way. Yeah. Yep. Thanks. And then John to round it up. Sure. No problem. Um, so I'd say we're probably the most, the most narrow of um, everyone on the call. You know, we are primarily almost exclusively doing debt with a, with a relatively simple thesis and that's investing in plant touching businesses uh, up and down the supply chain. Um, typically, you know, businesses in the supply chain that find themselves uh, to be capital intensive by virtue of either what they do or just the scale of the businesses. So that's either a grower, which is capital intensive by nature or a chain of retail, just by virtue of how large that business is or if they're going through M&A. And we typically do this in limited license states. Um, the capital intensiveness uh, just speaks to our, our ability to wanna be able to put money to work efficiently and do that in borrowers that we feel are platforms for growth and that we can continue to lend through, through the life cycle of their business and industry. Um, and hopefully be the leaders in, in the consolidation that we're, I think, still early innings in. And limited license states or limited license municipalities, um, things of that nature just speak to some of the competitive modes we look for in, in borrowers and like, the staying power of their cash flow and, and ability to service debt and grow. Um, what we look for in, in potential borrowers really first is people. Um, again, particularly if we're viewing them as a platform for growth, um, people is one of the hardest parts of this business, both yeah. from my perspective as an operator and having to hire those people, but also as an investor. I think, um, you know, there's, we've seen the trials and tribulations of evolution in this industry. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and, and still, um, I'd say, uh, 
legacy players within the space, even as it's institutionalized a lot over time. Um, you know, as former operators, I, I pride ourselves on our ability to, to sort of um, underwrite the, the human risk and do um, more than just the typical background checks we would do. It's, it's right. a real world asking people we, we know in the industry or frankly, a lot of cases we've, we've done business with these people as operators. And then the second part of it are the assets and what I described earlier. Um, we definitely don't try to fit a square peg into a round hole. Um, debt isn't for everyone. Um, we're not in this business to uh, loan to own. Um, I'd rather go make another five loans during the time it would take me to fight that out in court. And, and frankly, we're looking for real partnerships here. Uh, I've been an operator and I don't, you know, I, I, I enjoy what I do now in, uh, in actually managing a fund. Some of the businesses that it's not for just too early, um, whether it's too early in a market that we don't know how it's gonna shape up and we're not sure where supply demand will ultimately equalize or um, just too early in their life cycle. If, if they're about to engage on a two year construction project, they, they won't be able to service debt for a long time. Sure. Um, also the type of business it is, um, we're not doing any businesses that I would put in the, the venture category. So we're not doing software, we're not doing biosynthesis of cannabinoids. Um, those are big bets that I don't think are, are suited, towards, um, suited towards the typical type of debt that we do. Um, and then, Sometimes there's businesses that would check those two boxes, but otherwise just couldn't support debt. There are people that come to us with a project and they'll say, I wanna capitalize this 100% debt. We're not trying to put um, borrowers in positions that we think are unsustainable or, or heading into a, uh, a restructuring. So that's it from a, from a high level and how we think about the world and our opportunity set. Great, thanks Jonathan. Um, so from here, we'd love to open up the conversation a little bit more and just dive into what are some of the lesson lear lessons learned from everyone on this panel. You know, obviously, we've all been in the industry for several years at least now, and we know the cannabis industry really moves at light speed or in dog years. So, you know, have seen some pretty major changes during that time. And so I'm curious to hear if, if folks on the panel um, have seen, you know, specific management teams outperform expectations or specific subsectors do better than they would have expected. Uh, in years past. And so I'll, I'll just toss that idea out there and, and see if anyone has thoughts there. Well, uh, I would actually echo John's point around quality of the management team is really paramount. You know, a, a good team uh, is able to navigate all kinds of up and downs of the industry. Um, finding good teams is difficult. Um, it's one of the, the key criteria that we look at on any new investment. Um, and we also approach investments with a lens of, okay, what does your organizational structure look like today? And then show me an org chart of what do you think it will look like 12 months from now or 18 months from now? And the good management teams are thinking that far ahead and are able to demonstrate, you know, be able to, to think about it and discuss that. Um, a lot of teams cannot because they're just so focused on what's, what's in front of them. But the team aspect is critical. Uh, and we rely on our network. Again, you know, most of us at Tuatara uh, come out of institutional backgrounds. We have a very deep network um, and we have advisors that also have a very deep network. So when it comes to supplementing some of these management teams, uh, we really utilize that, that broader network to bring people in to help. Uh, to, to Ross's point, uh, we're also very hands-on. Um, 
we sit on the boards of all of our companies. Um, we like to think that we're more than providers of capital. Uh, we really are providers um, of assistance, um, you know, at the companies at the, the various stages of, of their life cycle. Um, besides that, I would say um, having companies focus sometimes you know, you know, you try to bite off more than you can chew. There's lots of ideas you can chase. There's lots of things you can do, but having that focused mindset on execution um, is really important. Um, and then, lastly, the cardinal rule is, you know, cash is king, and don't run out of money. <laughs> options disappear at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, options disappear. And you know, one of my favorite quotes is, "All companies that go bankrupt go bankrupt for the same reason: they run out of cash." <laughs> That's good. Serge, if you don't mind, I might add to that uh, and, and totally agree with everything you said there. Um, you know, we, we like to see, I'm sure everyone on this call sees the same thing. You see a lot of decks out there, you know, across the different segments where management teams and companies are trying to do everything and be thing to every part of the, you know, stakeholders in the supply chain. Whereas, you know, that, that very well may work, but having that focused, disciplined approach to doing what you do best, succeeding at that, and then potentially, you know, if you want to call it adding new products or services onto the core platform, but that concept of getting over your skis a little too early, we've certainly seen a lot. And then, you know, again, on the, on the management team front, that is a key attribute across any company that we look at strong, passionate, trustworthy, experienced management teams and having that ability to look in the mirror and asking, answering, you know what you don't know. And so being able to being able and willing to surround yourself with people that may have certain unique qualities to help complement the broader management team or company uh, is certainly key to, you know, our early discussions with management teams and folks we like to partner with. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'd echo what, what both Ross and Serge say, and maybe just to use some public markets examples of it, you know, the thing that I think a lot of people got right, or management teams in particular, as a characteristic is patience and discipline. You can look at someone like TrueLeave and their success there, right? They focused on a single state for so long, dominated that state, took their time with it, built a really sustainable capital base, and then went out and started expanding on a, on a multi-state basis. Um, the, under, the other end of the spectrum, where I think we saw most of um, the debacles, at least in the public markets and plant touching side of things, is the exact opposite, participating in a land grab and, and doing so, you know, for my world, with, with debt that's unsustainable. Mm. You can think about the MedMen and Ianthus as very public examples of, of where that can go wrong, just chasing the, the brand new shiny thing. Right. Yeah, and I would add to that, I was talking to a, an operator today and he was saying in 2017, he's like, I barely had a business and so many people were throwing money at me. And so, you you know, we're at, we sit here at, in kind of a spot of luxury in that we've had a number of years go by where a lot of that was weeded out. There was a lot of money thrown at not good operators, not good business plans, simply because people were, from a capital perspective, a land grab, right? <laughs> to use your terms, Jonathan, right? And so that has sort of been weeded out. And now we sit here with some 
a, a more mature industry that has been able to attract really strong talent. And so now you've got management teams that have depth of experience in traditional CPG or other manufacturing environments um, that, that lend themselves to a, just a, a much better and stronger business outlook and are more, then you can sustain leverage on that business, right? Um, you know, speaking from a, a debt provider's perspective, but um, you know, it, you just have to look at what's happened and it's happened so quickly over the last three or four years, the rush of capital, yeah. The flushing sound of much of that capital <laughs> now where we are today. <laughs> uh, capital markets can be very fickle. You know, yeah. we, we it's not just in cannabis. I mean, you know, most of us spend career in, uh, you know, outside oh, of cannabis. Yeah. And I remember, you know, certainly a little, even over the last decade, there are periods of time, if you need to raise money, capital markets were shut, both debt and equity markets. And hopefully you didn't need to raise money in that quarter. Um, so, uh, when it comes to to these companies, especially the businesses that are more capital intensive, you know, really understanding your capital needs and really understanding budgeting is is really key. Uh, you know, it, it, in terms of hires, one of the key hires that we always um, look usually to supplement after a new investment is someone to take over as head of finance or CFO. You know that's 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 definitely an individual that we that we that we look to bring in if, if we don't think that the company has one because that is that is really critical um, um, because I think is we have found that the finance function in general across this industry is the one function that you know just 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 needs needs some more work. Yep. And, and Serge and Heather, you know, both of you bring up the capital market cycles, which was our next topic of, of discussion. I think it's hypercritical to really dive in here, right? Because um, as, as you both mentioned, you know, capital markets are fickle in all industries. I think that's particularly true in emerging volatile industries like cannabis. And, you know, we've certainly seen huge, huge swings over the last several years that are often much more tied to kind of shiny objects and the latest news and who got elected much less so relevant to what's actually going on on the ground with the consumer markets. And so we'd love to get people's perspectives on just any advice for companies that are looking to fundraise. You know, what are some of the lessons learned from, from these very volatile movements that we've seen in capital markets where, for example, when Jeff Sessions rescinded the Cole memo, people panicked, there was this big sell-off. Then you know nothing really materialized from that. You know, then you see canopy growth getting this huge investment from Constellation Brands in the second half of 2018 that really just lit the capital markets environment on fire. You know, like like Heather was alluding to, a lot of folks lost their shirts during that time period. And you know, now we've kind of gotten back to a, a relatively strong capital markets environment, although certainly not as, as strong as it was back in January, right after the election, when people thought that you know legalization was two days away. And so Anyway, that's my long-winded intro to the capital markets discussion. Um, Ross or Jonathan, anything to add to what uh, what the three of us have said so far? Sure. You know, keep it simple and repeat some of what we were discussing. Um, if you can't afford debt today, you sh shouldn't take it because you know that those interest payments or amortizations or maturities are due. But if you can, I think this is a super interesting industry that we're early innings in and save that equity because your cost of equity is a lot more expensive than your cost of debt, although that's inflating, inflated and coming down over time as well. Mm. So I'd say take, take advantage of the debt markets if they're there for you and it's a sustainable solution. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I echo that 
everything that everyone has said. I mean, we firmly believe in looking at management teams that are hyper-focused on building a fundamentally sound business that can potentially withstand some of this volatility that we're talking about in the capital markets, as well as on the supply and demand side, right? If you've got a sound, stable business, you should be able to withstand those fluctuations uh, and being prudent with capital, uh, making sure that the decisions that you are making as a management team are backed by hard data and evidence, as opposed to making spur of the moment, whimsical decisions based on the flavor of the day. Sure. Uh, so prudence and discipline are all things we were focused on. And I would add uh, kind of um, a little bit along what Serge was saying with regards to budgeting and planning. Like when you, when you start thinking about what form of capital you want, right? Are you trying to raise equity? Uh, can you support debt? Um, you know, you need to understand how much do I need? You know, I think you said at the outset, Serge, cash is king, right? Liquidity is key. Are you, is your business burning or is it, are you profitable? And so how much capital do you need and what do you need it for? Um, and then when you come to market, obviously it's always best to go and look for capital when you don't need it, um, right? Because that's when you have the most leverage to have that conversation. Um, but, you know, and then the, the whole concept of being very methodical, patient, pr prudent, and, you know, I get approached by, by people, hey, we got this opportunity to buy this dispensary. It's really cool. It's a great price. Like, can you fund it for us? And I'm like, well, what capital do you have? Well, we don't have any. And I'm like, well, like, what, what are you, why are you even like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> when you talk about having a network and are you able to attract strong equity financing, equity partners, and then, and then I, you know, further just say, you are picking a partner, whether it's equity or debt, you are picking a partner and you are in bed with these people for a long time. And so it's not always about that next basis point or something very simple, you know, debt often has covenants. Like how do these people act? Are they a loan to own shop? Jonathan mentioned that, right? Like, who are you dealing with here? It's not just money. Um, and you want people who can add value and you also want just good people, much like we as investors want to work with good, trustworthy operators, right? It goes both ways. And so don't forget that if, as you're thinking about who you want to partner with um, from a capital perspective. Yeah. 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 The other point I would add, just from our perspective is from Tuatara, I mean, we're really building an institutional quality firm for the long term. And part of that is being able to invest through the cycles. You know, every business is cyclical. I you know, firmly believe in cyclical markets, um, this industry cycles. Um, and sometimes you're going to invest, you know, maybe at the top of the cycle. Sometimes you're going to invest at the bottom of the cycle. But I think as you continue to deploy capital and continue to invest and be and 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 be there for for, for these companies, um, you know, we're we're big believers in that. Um, and then I do I look as anything else as the industry where companies continue to evolve from more venture stage companies to growth companies, you know, just kind of up that curve, they certainly will be able to, you know, take on more debt, uh, be, you know, have a lot more optionality when it comes to capital structure, et cetera. Right. Um, and, you know, even though we're generally kind of equity investors, you know, you know, we work with company with our companies to find the best, you know, capital solution for them, whether it's equity or debt. Um, as they continue to grow. Yep, yep. 
Thanks, Serge. And I think that's a great segue into our next discussion on, on valuation for the equity folks and pricing for the debt folks. You know, how do you view pricing and valuation in the markets today for cannabis businesses? Do you think that these businesses are receiving a premium because they're cannabis businesses or a discount? Um, you know, what, what is everyone's thoughts on that front? Happy to jump in there and take a first crack at it. I mean, I think more broadly, you know, uh, valuations, cannabis, non-cannabis, public, private are, uh, are, are a bit inflated in nature. And so, you know, I think it depends where, and, and sub, certainly some uh, segments of the market within the cannabis space, you are seeing a bit of a premium, right, versus, versus more traditional non-cannabis segments. Um, but, you know, I, I think we at Intrinsic, you know, are, are big believers in, in not chasing deals just to chase deal sake. And so, you know, every opportunity that comes across the desk is, is vetted in, in a very disciplined and methodical manner. And, and price and value does matter, right? Um, we obviously strongly believe, like we all talk about in this theme and the secular generational trend and the underlying growth dynamics, um, but does that mean you're going to pay whatever price it takes to get access? And for us, the answer is no. Um, so it's definitely a little bit of a you know fine line in evaluating you know the types of businesses. But I think it, it really depends. Um, I don't think there's one clear cut answer. I think if you were to look 12, 18 months ago, uh, we probably have a diff different answer. Uh, 12 months, you know, looking forward, probably a slightly different answer <laughs> as well. But there's a, it's definitely different depending upon the type of segment you're looking at. Yep. And, and Ross, you know, I think that's a great point. And one thing I would add to is part of um, what I think causes some of the valuation, we'll say inconsistencies in the market is just the nature of cannabis and the ability of, of where different sectors can list publicly. Right. And what I mean by that is if you're a plant touching business in the U.S., that means you're not able to access the NASDAQ or the NICE. So most of these uh, plant touching businesses in the U.S. that have chosen to go public have had to do so up um, on Canadian exchanges like the CSE. Those exchanges obviously have much less uh, retail investor demand, much less um, liquidity, even institutional investor demand. A lot of them are boxed out of it. So I think that's why you've typically seen, and not obviously not always, but I think you've seen a little bit more rationality for the U.S. MSOs that are publicly listed, especially given the underlying growth characteristics. And then on the flip side, I think what we've seen with a lot of the NASDAQ listed companies, those being both the Canadian limited or sorry, licensed producers that have listed on the NASDAQ or NICE, as well as some of the ancillary cannabis businesses that have listed, that there's just been such uh, investor demand for access to cannabis businesses that they flooded into these businesses. And, and I think, frankly, a lot of them have been historically overvalued just because that's really been the only cannabis um investment asset class that a lot of investors have been able to access to this point. So I think as regulations change and the industry normalizes and more investors come to the market, some of those dynamics should normalize, but it's, uh, it's definitely part of the uh, idiosyncrasies of the cannabis market today. It's a super simple supply demand imbalance. I mean, that's exactly, you know, econ 101, right? Not enough supply of companies to invest in. So all those dollars go concentrated into a few. And, and, and like over time, obviously, that will start, you know, that will start to equalize, I think, as we all expect, as this industry continues to mature, um, you know, depending, you know, I think we all expect something will happen at the federal level eventually, 
Um, and that will obviously create a lot more uh, capital that will come into this industry, both from equity standpoint and debt standpoint. Um, and, um, you know, that will kind of a little bit, I think will go the other way. I think, I think it'll inflate existing prices for a while. Um, as all that capital kind of floods in and then we'll see how it, you know, works its way through. Um, but I would say from a standpoint of current companies and I'm talking private companies now from a valuation standpoint, um, we're, I would say very careful and disciplined when it comes to valuation. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we are generally, you know, not turnaround investors. We would rather invest in good companies with good teams and good and good growth prospects. And that means, you know, that multiple is going to be a bit higher than some other company where we, you know, we don't feel has the quality. Um, generally, we will do that. Um, because especially in this industry, as we've talked about, um, execution is, is really key. Um, and you, you, you want, you know, those companies to do well, because those companies will be, continue to be able to get funded in the future and uh, eventually kind of, you know, grow into, you know, whatever multiple you're paying for them. Sure, sure. I think that's a, it's a Charlie Munger quote, right? That uh, I'd rather invest in a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. It's, it's, it's really, it's, 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 there's just, it, there's a lot of opportunities out there. I think all of us get a lot of decks, you know, every single week and trying to kind of, you know, kind of weed, weed through them. And we, we do have a lens that we look at opportunities. Um, but, but certainly, uh, as of right now, you know, we're really not focused on any kind of turnaround uh, deals. We'd rather find good companies uh, that we can back. Yeah, I'll echo, I'll echo that as well. Just to, you know, the if we were finding turnarounds, they're probably ending up in, in restructuring or defaults. Yeah. Then you're the equity investor. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, from a debt perspective, in terms of valuations or at least trends in debt debt pricing, I think if you compared leverage metrics to where we're investing, um, you do see a slight premium in that cost of debt relative to traditional similar industries that you compare it to, like alcohol, tobacco, or CPG. Um, and this creates a admittedly risk-adjusted return that's really attractive for us. That being said, um, I think it's a, also a really attractive way to finance your business for our borrowers and portfolio companies. It's a it's a win-win, and that that low to mid-teens debt is is attractive to them relative to equity that they think is going to quadruple or quintuple in the next five years. Um, and the other thing I'd put out there. Serge, I think you commented on this, is that there's still a lot of execution risk in this business. And that's the fact that these companies are new, the people managing them are often new to their seats and the regulatory position the business finds itself in is very new. Um, additionally, like just from a plant touching perspective, uh, a lot of people like to make the comment that, you know, this isn't rocket science, but growing this plant at scale is hard. We saw that in a big way in Canada, and we're seeing a lot of LPs up there shut down these massive, massive plants they built. It is extremely difficult to do this in large scale. Um, and I think when you think about what that means for leverage metrics or, or cash flow projections, there's a lot of volatility to those projections or what those uh, leverage metrics could look like on a forward basis. And I think that's some of what is still deserving of that, that um, 
yield premium relative to traditional industries. And I, I think will still persist to some extent um, post change in banking laws, um, we're still gonna see that execution risk there. Right. Yeah, and Jonathan, you know, not just on the execution front, but I think also with cannabis, you have this embedded regulatory risk where even in states that have legalized, we've seen regulators change laws on a kind of on a whim that, you know, really materially impact businesses. And so because that plays such an important role in the story, I think that again is part of the justification for the act. Yeah, or, or even conversely, you know, pass laws that the regulators aren't willing to enforce. Um, right. and, and that changes people's business plans in a big way. The, you know, the, the dominance of a illicit market or gray market in the California or Michigan is a, is a great example of this. Absolutely. Great. So with that, I would love to dive into our next topic, which uh, I'm excited about here. So friend or foe, what does everyone on this webinar think about each other, frankly? I mean, what do you think about the landscape for funds in the cannabis market? Do you view all of us collectively as complements, as competitors, or a hybrid of the two? And, and how do you expect that those dynamics will evolve as the industry continues to mature? I'll, actually, I'll it, sorry, I, I was just going to say, I actually view, uh, A, I, there's, there are, there's not a lot of capital that's available to investments in this industry. I mean, right. there's, you know, five of us today, you know, there's probably another, you know, dozen kind of, you know, you know, kind of firms, you know, kind of out there. But, you know, when you add up all the capital that's available, it's compared to other sectors, it's really not a lot. Um, so, you know, between friend and foe, I, I actually view us as friends. I mean, I think that, you know, we're trying to support the industry. We're trying to support companies. Um, certainly from the TARA perspective, we, we play very well with others. We even, you know, people on this on, on this panel, we've looked at deals together and we're very happy to do that. Uh, um, and as these, you know, because these companies um, need, need support from a capital perspective. Plus, you know, everyone kind of brings something else to the table, whether it's, you know, uh, from an equity perspective, or even, you know, certainly I'm looking forward to, you know, with Heather and John connecting with you guys in the future about some debt opportunities for some of our portfolio companies. Right. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, um, one, you know, I'd love to work, work with you guys. And I think we, you can see the obvious fits and complementing each other in a capital structure, but a broader sense, I think we all sink or swim together. This, this is an industry that's still federally illegal. Uh, there's a lot of work to do to get it right. We still have targets on our backs from multiple places and perspectives. And I think we all need to work together to institutionalize this industry. And, and I think that's going to be a win for all of us. Yeah. And the, and the lack of capital, in particular, when you look at the debt side, um, you know, some of these companies have scaled very quickly. And then you look at some of the M&A that's taken place. These are really big companies now, and I, you know, you have to be a massive fund to be able to do all of the debt, right? You right. have to, from a diversity perspective, we have to partner together in order to be able to support these companies. And so, yeah, I would, I would say this is a friendly forum here. Yeah, uh, echo every, every what everyone's saying here. I think we probably all agree that this industry has been maturing and evolving quickly, and so has the sophistication of, of capital providers mm -hmm. in the space year over year, month over month. And I hope that's evidenced by the, the collective group here on the call. But, you know, the, the, the concept around diversity of the thought, diversity of opinion, you know, we're big believers in that. And being able to partner with 
the right strategic folks who are thoughtful, intelligent, um, you know, honest uh, is, is valuable. Um, aligning yourself with the proper stakeholders, all of us collectively, I think is important for the industry and will certainly be important going forward. Fully agree, fully agree. And I think, Heather, that's a great point you bring up too with regards to, you know, diversification from a fund perspective where most of the time, a lot of the companies that were back and especially as the industry continues to grow and the businesses continue to grow, you know, it just doesn't make sense for one fund to take down the entire raise from a diversification perspective. So you almost inherently need to bring in partners. As everyone said, there's not that many options you have in cannabis today. So very friendly landscape today. I think especially across the cap stack, you know, having both equity and debt partners that can help to team up on deals is, is really attractive as well. Now, I do think, of course, going uh, going forward, as regulations improve, as it becomes more and more apparent that regulations are only going in the right direction, there will certainly be more investors coming into the space. You know, that will drive down the cost of capital for folks, will make deals more competitive. But I do think with cannabis, you're always going to have pretty significant barriers, right, in the sense that a lot of traditional institutional private equity and venture capital funds have underlying limited partners like um, public pension plans, like sovereign wealth funds that would never be okay investing in what they consider to be a vice industry, you know, obviously being cannabis, lumping it in with alcohol and tobacco. So I think there's always going to be a barrier from that standpoint. From the debt side, I also think you're going to see a lot of the bulge back at banks either never work in cannabis or take you know, very long time to get into the industry just because it is so complex, it is so highly regulated. And so while certainly I think some of the rates that you're able to get on term debt in cannabis today will compress, I, I certainly believe that there's going to be a pretty material floor. And when you look at, you know, what traditional syndicated loans are getting in the capital markets environment today outside of cannabis, it's still, I think, going to be a very attractive premium for the risk you're, that you're taking. Yeah, no, Jordan, just to, uh, to build on your point, um, we've had a number of conversations where people think that if, you know, let's say capital markets open up and the view is that all of a sudden all of the banks are going to jump into this industry, um, which will force, you know, let's say, you know, credit funds you know, out or, or put a lot of pressure on them. I really don't think so. I mean, there's obviously going to be selective banks that come into it, but I suspect a lot of the, the big regional banks or even national banks are going to be very, very selective. And there's still going to be very much an opportunity for, for credit funds uh, to continue to, to, uh, to lend and continue to invest, you know, in this sector, uh, as opposed to competing, you know, with, you know, kind of the, the, the 4,000, you know, kind of U.S. banks out there. Yep, absolutely. And so with that, we'll take it to the final topic. And I think a great segue again is, you know, where do we go from here? What do you all think about proposed regulations like the Schumer bill or safe banking and, and how will that potentially impact the uh, landscape for financing in the cannabis industry? I think we need to know what it looks like. Right. There's been, you know, um, there's obviously people have been talking about this for, uh, for many, for many years. And obviously there's been, you know, votes, you know, and, and on the house around various bills and the Schumer bill is probably the most recent one. Um, but in general, you know, every step is a step in the right direction. Um, but it will, I suspect, take uh, longer than people anticipate for everything to kind of to work its way through until there's something that um, uh, where people have you know have an agreement on. 
Yeah, I would say at the federal level in particular, there's so very little that they can agree on just in general, right? right. So nothing takes, it goes quickly. I mean, I think that to see safe banking would be, quite frankly, would be fantastic because these companies, like the, having to deal with cash is, you know, everybody knows that's the, 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 the biggest problem. So it'd be nice if people could have traditional commercial banking services available to them. Um, but, you know, they keep, it's like still like pushing a rock up a hill. Um, uh, so and I'd be curious, like, I don't know how, how I, do you, any of you in your firms get involved in some of the lobbying or are you around any of that? It'd be interesting to see like, you know, the resistance from the states to federalization because of the um, disruption of their real nice little markets that they've created locally and that tax revenue. Um, so is anybody involved in any of that um, in your firms? Yeah, we're, we, we sit as founding members of the National Cannabis Roundtable, so, which is much more of a federal perspective. I, I think the general read there is um, the Schumer bill isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And yeah. I don't, you know, as per Cory Booker's comments, I don't think we're going to see any baby step measures in the interim. So for with you, it's going to take a while. You, you bring up a really good point um, about the state governments wanting to protect their nascent industries. I haven't seen that happen yet explicitly. Um, our Utah business that I still sit on the board of um, is, um, you know, I, I think there it's too early for them to see it. I was vice president of the Pennsylvania Trade Association for, for its first two years of existence. And I, I don't think that um, it was a major issue for them as much as fixing some of the state program issues are, but I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see these states start to bring up those issues over time. Um, most of this centers around the idea of interstate commerce. Personal opinion, because of the execution risk of growing uh, good flour at scale, I only think this is going to affect some part of the market, not all of it, and I'd be curious what you guys think. Um, the interstate commerce from like a product perspective, I think really talks to biomass and oil. I still think there's gonna be a need in each state for someone to be growing indoor. And if you're paying the same electricity prices in California as you are in uh, Pennsylvania, I don't know that there's much of an advantage to ship that across the country. And that's 50 to 60% of the product mix out there. From a, you know, from a how it, it affects us perspective, I, I think, capital markets and some form of safe banking will happen eventually. And the hope for, for my business, Heather's, I'm sure similar to yours, is that we're putting much more money to work uh, on a larger scale at lower returns at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, just to add to that, um, you know, I think that the view that at some point in time, whether it's three, four, five years down the road, Federal legalization, um, you know, seems to be an obvious kind of next step at some point in time. But these incremental changes at the state level, you know, new states coming on the medical side, more states passing on adult use, seeing things evolved in Europe, Latin America, et cetera, all you know, catalysts and great drivers of change. It'd be tough, obviously, to put a, a, a date and a line in the sand on when things will change at the federal level, but um, no. I you know, collectively, we, you know, as, as, you know, as part of our responsibility to help shape that. And so, you know, we're, we're actively speaking with, you know, folks at the state level, 
to help, you know, ensure a safe, compliant rollout of regulatory measures, which, you know, positively impact the entire ecosystem. Yeah, and, you know, I'll, I'll echo what's been said in terms of it doesn't look like the Schumer bill is going to have any real traction or anything of similar impacts, you know, over the next several years, at least, I think real unless unrealistic, at least during Biden's, uh, you know, current term. Now, the other thing I'd want to highlight, too, is even when we do get some major federal legalization type legislation, you know, I think people tend to have this misconception that now, boom, like a flick of the switch, everything's great, honky-dory, legalization's federal, and, and you've got an up-and-running industry. And, you know, if we look at the hemp industry, that's been clearly not the case, right? So when you saw at the end of 2018, federally, we legalized hemp, hemp-derived CBD. The industry took off in 2019 and then really cratered in 2020 when the industry just realized that there were a whole host of issues that still needed to be sorted through. There was clearly not enough extraction capability to process all the hemp biomass. The FDA continued to drag their feet as they still do today with regards to how hemp products could be marketed. And so really caused a, actually more of a slowdown than I'd say an, an impetus that, that originally spurred on. So anyway, point being is, I think even when we do get to this critical point of federal legalization, it's still going to take at least a couple of years for regulators to figure out how to make things work, to get the supply chain fully up and running, to figure out some of these interstate commerce rules as, as we would expect. A lot of the states will try to create protectionist laws that you can't transport product across state lines and that kind of thing. So anyway, long story short is I think we're in for a long and windy ride, but in general, all moving up and to the right. So really excited to have gotten this far with the, the four of you on this panel and uh, excited to see where the future of the industry takes us. Yeah, and I would just, just on the regulation point, you know, legalization or decriminalization without regulation, it would be a nightmare. You know, they, if all of a sudden things got decriminalized tomorrow and there's really no, no infrastructure, no regulations in place, um, it, it, it would not be good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, but that, that will take time. Yeah. Absolutely. Agreed. Cool. Well, great. Well, thank you everyone again for taking the time for joining this panel. I had a fantastic time. Hope you all had fun as well as, as will our listeners. So thanks again, everyone, and have a great rest of your afternoon. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for putting it together. Thank Appreciate thanks, it. Jordan. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.